Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, thanks, Eric. Hey, guys. I'm just doing a quick scan because I, yeah, this family, like I would know everybody here. Uh, so this, that's good. So I'm not welcoming any of you because you've all been here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is a happy, uh, let's see, day after Christmas. It's Boxing Day, which I think is like start of the diet regret day, right, I think. Um, it's Kwanzaa. It is um, also, like if you grew up in a, in a Baptist world, uh, it is International Youth Minister Preaching Day. Um, uh, but I am glad that I'm here, uh, and uh, this is good. This is I, I feel totally relaxed, like I'm as I'm looking around and seeing your faces, and that's good for my heart. Tracy, you're out there looking at me. Do I need to? Oh, kids are standing here, right? Which kids? I'm going to try to make. I'm going to. We're going to. Uh, we're not going to be up here forever, but I do want. I, I need your attention because we're going to. I'm going to try to make it at least somewhat interesting for you. Um, let me read from 1 John, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to look at the Christmas story, traditionally the one from Luke chapter 2, Luke the historian, but uh, I just want s- just some, some thoughts uh, to kind of let sink in uh, to our minds and our hearts as we, as we have a week, uh, this, this kind of uh, no man's land between New Year's and Christmas to, to think about that, which is actually not no man's, it is Christmas. And uh, I think Paul asked earlier, can we say Merry Christmas the day after? Yes, you have 12 days. This is Christmas. We are no longer in Advent. Uh, Expected longings fulfilled. Okay? So you want to try that one on, uh, go for it. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 4. Uh, This is actually, uh, we we left off quite a bit before this in 1 John, but let me read this for you, and then we'll we'll look, uh, we'll go back into the, the story here. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. If you think back to the first part of 1 John, when he says that that the word has been made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, so one of the stories that I found this week, this is, this is fascinating. It was in 2012 in a truck stop in the middle of Oklahoma somewhere. A woman by the name of Keaton Morris uh, and her husband, husband or fiance, they were driving, uh, and uh, they were driving to the hospital to, for her to deliver her baby. And uh, things progressed very, very, very quickly, and so they pulled into a truck stop. 
and uh, they d actually delivered the baby in the car. I think it was, I think they said it was a Honda Accord, secondary, uh, totally secondary. Like, I don't know that that's a, like a marketing, you know, spacious enough to, whatever. Um, but they actually delivered the baby in the car, and the husband ran to, to find a phone to call 911, uh, and to find if there was anybody that could help. And uh, the woman, Keaton, while holding the baby, noticed that the baby had started turning blue and started screaming and yelling for help. And everybody panicked. Nobody knew what to do. I mean, put yourself in those shoes. Like, that's easy to panic at, right? Um, and then uh, along comes a guy named Gary Wilson. Gary Wilson, a homeless man, who was hitchhiking from Montana down to Jacksonville, Florida, just happened to be there. And he was super chill. He was calm. He walked up and said, I think I can help you. He got on the phone with a 911 uh, operator who talked him, the paramedic, who talked him through what to do. And he unwrapped the cord and he patted the baby on the back and he tied a knot in the cord and he patted the baby on the back until the baby coughed and started breathing again, and then gave the baby back to her mom. And they said he had long hair and a beard, uh, and he kind of looked like Jesus. And uh, the employees of the truck stop gave him a meal and let him spend the night there for free. Uh, and they said when they went to check on him the next morning, he was gone. There's several accounts to this. I don't know if, like, if they've never found Gary Wilson again in the future. But I love stories of unexpected heroes. Um, I, uh, I, I have, like, I was driving home from college one weekend. My car started to slowly die, and a guy pulled over on the side of the road in a pickup truck and said, I think your alternator's going out. And I'm like, how do you know that? And he goes, because your lights were getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And so he let me call my dad from his phone, and my dad came out and helped fix my alternator. Dr had to drive an hour and a half to get there, but and then he was he was gone. Uh, I love I love just the stories of unexpected heroes. And so what happens in the birth of Jesus as we just we cover this one more time is it can become it, it has become common. We sing the songs. We talk through the story. We read the Luke 2 account, uh, and it can become commonplace, and it can almost become ho-hum. Um, not ho-hum bug, but ho-hum. And, uh, and so this morning, I just want to take a few minutes. I have three thoughts to, to kind of ponder about the birth of Jesus and what this does, and, and just to let this kind of sit and marinate in us. And so here's the, here's the three thoughts. Uh, the, birth, the birth of Jesus happened in history, it happened in time and history. It was marked with humility, and it was motivated by love. Okay? So the first, that it, was, it happened in history. Um, when John writes, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. Now, love in and of itself can be a tricky thing to define, right? We tend to go kind of one of two ways. It's hard to define what love is. One side says we just need to love people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, love is all you need. I think John Lennon said that. And we can kind of, love is kind of almost more like a self-indulgent, 
uh, just, you know, we just need to love, or potentially even indifferent, right? You know what? I love you. I don't care what you do, uh, which we would say a parent who loves a child that is running out toward traffic doesn't say, you know what? I love you. I don't care what you do. You do whatever you can to stop them. You love toward an end. And then the other side kind of gets real like, you know, you talk about love and they're like, that's just touchy-feely, feel-goodery stuff. And they just want to like hammer these theological truths, which this is the first time this ever hit me. When we read this verse earlier, um, in Isaiah, when he says, we have a wonderful counselor, so he's gentle like a counselor. We have a prince of peace, so he, he does bring in peace. We have, what are they, it's, uh, what? Yeah, father, so he's, he's, he has the, the characteristics of the father. Why, I don't know why my head's going blank. I didn't, this isn't in my notes. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. Okay, there you go. So we have a mighty, strong God. When we try to boil him down to one side or the other, we can say these absolute amazing theological truths about God and stand in the glorious excellencies of his, his greatness, and yet we can say that he wants to be close to us, that he comforts us in time of need. Um, he is all these things. And so love can get a little tricky. Um, and this is why what I love about this is when God sent his son into the world to become a human being, we have right before our eyes love. He became a real human being and dealt with real relationships, real people, real situations. Um, he loved people in real life. He entered time and history. Uh, Luke is one of the foremost historians, one of the most respected historians uh, ever. And, um, and so Luke wrote both the accounts of the life of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote, kids, anybody know what else Luke wrote? What other book in the Bible? Acts. He wrote the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the church. He records the, the history of the church. Now, this is, this is for double the points. Do you know who he wrote it to? No? He's Theophilus. I, yeah. <laughs> Garth making sure that there is no... He writes it to Theophilus. Theophilus actually hired Luke to write down the history of the life of Jesus and to record the beginnings of the church. And so Luke pays careful attention to, to detail and to history. And I want to tell you something. All right. You may have, when you, when you are or were in history class, uh, sometimes there can be disagreement about what actually took place. Sometimes there can be different perspectives. Nothing on this planet has received more scrutiny than the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Nothing has been investigated more. I read something about how it's likely that Shakespeare didn't actually exist. That there's actually a collection of authors, that there was no specific person named William Shakespeare. Think about it, have you ever, saw, have you ever seen him? All right, I'm not like starting a new conspiracy, I'm just saying. Um, but that was what, 400 years ago? Ish, 500? I, I'm not a Shakespeare fan. Um, no historical account has been scrutinized to the level that Christianity has. And yet, it, it, it has been verified. It is, it is 
historically reliable. Luke um, marks his story with certain things. He marks the story with Caesar Augustus. And I've been loving learning about uh, the Roman Empire. You've probably heard me talk more and more about this. Um, but I've really enjoyed learning more and more about the Roman Empire. Augustus, Caesar Augustus was a real human being. And he actually wasn't a bad leader for the most part. He had some issues, but he, he went to war with Cleopatra and they won the war uh, with Antony and Cleopatra and he won the war in Egypt. And he took that money and started paying Roman soldiers and he brought the Pax Romana, he brought peace to this Roman Empire and he expanded it and he, uh, he made, uh, he actually, he had a very troubled personal life. He had a daughter that uh, was uh, supposedly kind of off the rails uh, and, but he had no sons, he had no heir to the throne. He was paranoid. Um, all of the other, the, the, his, his nephews and nieces and his stepson that he was close to all died at a young age. So he had, a, he had kind of a heartbreaking personal life. Um, and yet he expanded the boundaries. And by all accounts, I think he loved Rome. Now, he made Roman Empire where he was the emperor. So anytime you're going to do something like that, you've you got to have a little bit of an ego. And even in the account of Luke, what he says, all the world should be taxed. All the world should be registered. Imagine the power that comes with you alone making that decision. You know what? I think everybody in the world should be taxed. That's tough to deal with. But even there, and this was interesting, one of the things that he did when you were going to be registered, when you, every, every government needs money to function, right? We can get into the argument of how much later and what's the function and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, he designed this on purpose. If you remember, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. Why? Because he was at the house and lineage of David. So he puts, he puts uh, so Augustus made everybody be registered. So they knew they were going to travel and they knew they were going to have to pay taxes. But one of the things he did was he said, I want you to go to where you are from. So bare minimum, you're going to have to travel to be registered and you're going to get taxed. But you, if everybody goes to the same place as where are, their lineage is from, then there's an opportunity to gather with family, to stay with family, to be, to be there. That was something intentional that Caesar Augustus did. Isn't that interesting? Um, and so I think he wasn't, you know, obviously he had some issues, but he wasn't a terrible leader. Luke marks the time. There was another census that would take place about five or six years later. He did the same thing as far as going to the house and lineage. He did the same thing in Egypt. Uh, Luke records in Acts chapter 6, I think, uh, or 5. There is another um, census that happens five or six years after this one. Um, and so Augustus was a real person. These events took place in history. Uh, Quirinius the, uh, of Syria, Luke marks him uh, as well. And so in all of this, Bible, biblical authors, Luke especially, is careful to place historical anchors. Jesus is not a fairy tale. This is not a once upon a time. This took place in time and history. And the reason this is important is not so that you can go and argue with people and say, I win. It is because 
God is not a God. Christianity alone, the Judeo-Christian God, is the God alone that makes himself known in the world because his desire is to be known. He doesn't remain aloof and say, you have to find the way to me. He doesn't just demand loyalty and say, you follow the rules to get to me. God actually enters into the story, and that's glorious. This is not just to prove. When he's in the Exodus, he parts the waters, not because he's just going to show the Egyptians who's boss, but because his people have been enslaved for 400 years, and it's likely that they are going to wonder if we can really trust this God. And so God makes himself known to demonstrate, I'm more powerful, you can trust me. God enters into the story. Um, and he makes himself known in time and history. Uh, that's the first. Second, uh, not only that God enters into, not only that this is in time and history, uh, but he enters to be uh, known. Um, and when he enters the story, it never looks like we think it's going to look. Um, uh, verse 9 from, from uh, 1 John chapter 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Uh, this is, I don't know if any of you grew up like me, but have you ever, like especially with Christianity, but you can do it with anything, where like you have the celebrity in mind that if God would just convert them, then, then, like now we're going to rock and roll. Anybody else have that? I always, like growing up, my late teen years, I was walking in a bookstore, and there was a magazine that had Michael Jordan on the cover. It was a Christian, youth Christian magazine that had Michael Jordan. And I was like, that'd be a big win for God. Right? I mean, that'd be a good move. You get Michael Jordan on your team, and who knows? And so, uh, and this was in his prime. This is not when he had retired and gone. I got a theory about that. Anyway, um, and so I read the article, I picked up, and I think it was a, a teenage magazine, and uh, the interviewer, Michael Jordan says something about praying before the game, and the interviewer says, you see that, kids? <laughs> something like, you know, you see that, kids? Michael Jordan is a follower of Jesus, and I'm like, that's a stretch. I'm not sure, but I did think that'd be a good strategy. Like, I thought that'd be a good strategy for God to, like, get Michael Jordan as the center uh, on, uh, maybe not center, point guard, I'm not a basketball guy, quarterback. Um, and, uh, and I just, this idea of, of, of like, if we get the celebrity win, then. And here's the thing. There are celebrity wins, uh, and it doesn't quite go the way you think, right? I mean, there's a Baldwin now that's a, like a strong follower of Jesus, and it doesn't quite go the way you thought it would go. Um, I was, sorry. Uh, but also, that's not often how Jesus enters into the story. It's not, it's usually not with the, the spotlights. It's usually not like he doesn't really ever enter into the story through the rich and the powerful and, and the kings and the rulers. When you look back, when the burning bush happens after 40 years of mundane dwelling in the desert, right? It, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Ruth, the foreign girl, the outsider, uh, who 
whose husband dies, and then she just stays with her mother-in-law, converts, and says, where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Um, she makes this glorious confession. Uh, and then she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. King David, the, the last, didn't even make the lineup uh, for the priests to come and name the king. The last, he was out in the field, the sons of Jesse, the youngest, totally dismissed, and yet he's the one that is going to be the king of Israel. God, even Israel herself, least among the nations, that God finds and builds up and makes beautiful. God often works through humble, the broken, the forgotten, that he makes beautiful and makes faithful. Um, and the story of the birth of Jesus is, is nonetheless, and, and, and I'll cover this quickly because we cover this a lot. Um, there's some really interesting thoughts here about the presence of God entering time and space. Uh, one that I thought was interesting, Leviticus 12 says that a woman who gives birth to a son is ceremonially unclean for seven days and then for a total of 40 days cannot enter into the temple. Not that they are sinful, but because of the blood, there's impurity. And that's just the way that the law read in Leviticus 12. Um, and yet, you have Mary. Uh, they would have been staying, uh, I mentioned this on Christmas Eve, probably more like a cave. Uh, that's what Justin Martyr says, and then, and then Constantine built a church uh, like over the top of the cave that they thought that Mary and Joseph would have been staying in. But even there, the cave was not like this private, a lot of times when we see the setting, um, it's just Mary and Joseph in, a, in like a private baby, in a private manger with animals around. Um, this was probably a public place. There were probably several other people there in the same situation as Mary and Joseph. I don't know how many of them had to give birth. Probably not very many. And so Mary and Joseph were probably in a public place, and, um, and, and yet they were alone. And so Mary didn't have family there to help. We don't really see how much family Joseph has there, although by the time the wise men get there, they, they, it does say that they were in a house. Uh, but they were, um, so Mary had to handle Jesus and hold him. And she was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and yet holding the, the king of the universe, the holiness of God. Uh, and then God brings in the shepherds. Now, I'm gonna, I've read some different things on shepherds. So usually what I've heard, and this is what a lot of scholars say, that shepherds were socially outcast people. That said, that might be something that happened a couple hundred years after the birth of Jesus um, with shepherds that were more like out in the country. So I don't, I don't know, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to say anything false, so I'm going to present there, there might be another uh, element here. Shepherds that would have been around Bethlehem would have been temple shepherds. Temple shepherds would have actually been considered priests. And the reason that they were considered priests is because they cared for the lambs, and they had to protect the lambs that would be sacrificed and make sure that they stayed free from blemish. Uh, and so they, would, they were the temple shepherds. They would, the priests had access to cloths that they would wrap lambs in in preparation so that the lambs would, be, would avoid getting hurt. And it was called swaddling cloths. Uh, they were strips that were ripped apart of various fabric. And it could be likely 
Mary obviously didn't just happen upon these. It could be that her, her aunt, Elizabeth, gave her swaddling cloths as kind of like a, a gift for the baby uh, that she had with her because, her, uh, because uh, Zachariah is a priest. So I don't know for sure why God calls the shepherds, why they were the first ones. Either way, the humility of what is being presented there, either the social outcasts are called to come and bear witness, or the temple priests who cared for the sacrificial lambs were called on a special duty to proclaim the coming of the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Uh, and, And that's fascinating. And then you have the rich and wealthy wise men. They were not kings. We, we, we do know that. They were wise men. They were astrologers. They were pagans. They were from the east. Here's something cool. You ready for this? All right, kids. They probably didn't ride camels. You know what they rode? Probably Arabian horses, which I think is so much cooler. Like that, all of a sudden, they're not just coming in like, you know, they're like flying in like on these big, huge Arabian horses. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, so there, now you can go in any relative's house that you go to that has the thing set up. You can be like, ah, they weren't riding camels. Um, and just show them. That, that's your, you can be the Neil deGrasse Tyson of, of your, uh, uh, your Christmas gatherings. Well, actually... Um, and, and the gifts that they brought. So this is the wealthy, but they, they were pagan. They were astrologers. Uh, they were from the east. And the gifts they brought were from the east. And, they, uh, and the gifts, both uh, the gold uh, alluding to the kingship of Jesus, uh, incense relating to the deity of Jesus, and then myrrh, which was an embalming perfume, uh, which is giving allusion to the mortality of Jesus. And so you have pagan wise men who humbly come before this Jewish child being born that they probably didn't quite fully know. All of this marks a very humble beginning, the way God entered the world. Uh, He came among the unclean. It foreshadowed his death and his sacrificial death, even in the birth We can probably overdo it by what we read into it, uh, but we can also underdo it and it can become very familiar. Uh, But the reality is the birth of Jesus in time and history is not in any way any historical God account would be told. And the fact that we say it so easy is, is, is probably more about how much Christianity has influenced our entire culture. Because in ancient world, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is not the way gods were brought into the world. Um, And then, uh, all right, so it was in time and history marked with humility. uh, And then one last time, returning to John. uh, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God abides in us, and love is perfected in us. Um, God does not make love known through a list of do's and don'ts. Every other religion gives you a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, If we mark Christianity as a morality, as a list of 
if we simply mark it as Christianity means this is what you do and this is what you don't do, let me give you some encouragement. That is not Christianity, that is paganism. The way love is expressed in Christianity is a story. It's actually a person. This is how we know what love is. Um, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That God is love. And so love can be hard to define, but it also invites us to sit under the person and work of Jesus. It's a story. Um, Rich Mullins put it this way, and I love this song. I love, if you ever, take time this week to listen to the, the original recording of the Jesus album, the last uh, album that, that Rich Mullins recorded before he died. Uh, and this is the way he puts it. We didn't know what love was till he came, and he gave love a face, and he gave love a name, and he gave love away like the sky gives rain and sun. We were looking for heroes. He was looking for the lost. We were searching for glory, and he showed us the cross. Now we know what love is because he loved us all the way to kingdom come. The love of Christ, God's love made manifest, is to be soaked in. It should be at times confusing. It's not just a list of if you love me, you do these, this, 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 and this. It is an invitation. Be loved by me. Follow me. Declare your allegiance to me. Wrestle with things. Look at the way Jesus dealt with his disciples. How many times do you see Jesus teaching his disciples very fine-tuned, precise doctrine? Does he teach them? Does he correct them? Does he, does he get it? Yes, he does. But he also laughs with them. He also jokes with them. He also, anytime they ask a question, he's like, well, let me tell you a story. He gives them parables. Um, the propitiation to be, is, is to be, that, uh, to appease. Uh, Jesus, it, early on, this is the part that you always want to cut your uncle off from as he's reading the, or whoever, that they're reading the story, the Luke 2 account, right? We always cut him short of the circumcision because when he gets there, it's like, okay, that's weird on Christmas but that is actually very significant. Jesus actually went through circumcision, the mark of dependence on God for young Jewish males. He didn't need it because he was God, but yet he went through it. He became the propitiation, which means in Christ, we are freed from having to do anything to impress God. We are freed from having to pay it back. Christ died for me, I'll live for him. John Piper calls that the debtor's ethic. We're not called to feel guilty and go, oh, okay, I should do that, or to try to repay it. We're called to respond. We're called to follow. We're called to walk in the tension, and Jesus is not going, you know, is not just looking at us cosmically disappointed. He's saying, keep walking. Keep following me. We sit under the teaching of Jesus. To know and experience God's love, we look at the life of Jesus. And so, this week, what I'm going to encourage you to do is take some time and actually sit under the life of Jesus. Read the accounts. We have four differing accounts in the good way. They're not differing. They have four various perspectives on the life of Jesus. Take some time and read through those. How did Jesus interact with people that were hard? How did he interact with people that were broken? How did he interact with people that were humble? 
How did he act with how did he interact with people that were proud? How did he interact with people that came before him and were like, Jesus, look at all I've done in your name? And he goes, I'm sorry, who are you? That ought to both comfort us and scare the mess out of us. Sit in the life of Jesus and evaluate. Are, are, are the things that I'm doing, the way that I'm loving other people, the way that I'm experiencing this, the efforts that I'm putting in, my insecurities and fears, are these, do these line up with the way Jesus interacted with people, the way he demonstrated the love of God made manifest among us? This is a story. You're not gonna, don't, look, don't read the life of Jesus and look for, okay, so we're not supposed to do these things and we are supposed to do these things. Get caught up in the story. Where am I falling today? Am I the powerful that he had to rebuke? Am I the humble that needed encouraging? Am I, where, where am I? Be careful of putting yourself in this, you know, oh, yeah, I am like Jesus. Careful. Experience the love of him first. Um, but God uses a story, which I think is brilliant because we get caught up in the stories. So let me finish with this. Great example of a powerful use of story. A young man who was compelled by his faith in Jesus uh, in 1843 he had read stories about the working poor in London, and he was compelled to do something about this. Uh, England's economy was shifting in a big way. People were moving from agricultural, moving from, uh, from farms and the outskirts of town to the cities because the economy was shifting from agricultural to manufacturing. And uh, the population had skyrocketed, and laborers... Uh, so England is, is supposed to be a Christian nation. Now, nations can be governed by Christian principles, but Christianity does not have nations, okay? Christianity does not have nations. It is a people not marked by human barriers. Okay, it doesn't mean you can't have Christian principles as governing, and I think those are good, but there are no Christian nations. So, uh, sorry, Laborers in this nation were seen as commodities, not humans. Owners of businesses and owners of these factories did not care about the humanity. They wanted to squeeze as much labor as they could for the lowest cost. And who charged the lowest amount? Children. And so you would have young girls uh, at 11 years old sewing dresses for middle class uh, the, for the middle class uh, dresses working 16-hour days, six hours a week. You would have children as young as eight pushing coal carts through underground tunnels uh, for an 11-hour workday. And so this young man who was soaking this in wanted to write a pamphlet in response to the government report on child labor in the UK, and he wanted to appeal to this supposed Christian mor moral to change these laws, and the pamphlet was titled, An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. And within a week of beginning to write the pamphlet, he decided that it would be much more powerful not simply to report stats, but to make this a story, to turn it into a story. This was a story that would call for England to examine herself and her indifference to the humanity around her, a call for her to see her own thirst for greed at the expense of others, and in the face of seeing herself, to own her sins and to repent 
and to change and to become a people not marked by greed, but marked by generosity. To appeal to business owners to pay better wages, to stop seeing workers as simply cogs in the machinery, but as actually humans worthy of compassion and dignity. And so the main character of this book, anybody know? Ebenezer Scrooge. Upon seeing the depth of their sin and their harsh treatment of their fellow man would wake up on Christmas morning and see that there was still time to change. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol was a call for England to repent and instead of a life of simply seeing humans as commodity to be marked by charity and goodwill toward fellow man, to love extravagantly, to dignify and to honor. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, and may that be truly said of us, all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. As Christ's love transforms us, as his love pours into us, there is a transformation to be freed from self-indulgence, to be freed from the feel the need that we have to prove, to be freed from looking down on others and having to elevate ourselves, to be freed from defensiveness and insecurity. Well, you're sinful and you haven't done this well. To be freed from having to mark our own space in the world and somehow prove that we belong. To be freed from shame and, and feeling like we have to succeed so that so-and-so will finally think we're something. Whatever it might be, Christ's love frees us from that so that it could also be said of us that we have loved well because we have been loved well. The story of Christmas is historical, takes place in time and history. It is marked with humility. It is not this grand, uh, to the victor go the spoils. And it is motivated by God's love and his generosity toward his people. All right? Now, I wanted to keep that shorter, and then I got caught up in it. Let's pray. Jesus, you entered time and space. And this is not a list of to-dos for us. This is something to be soaked in. It is something to be rejoiced in. It is something to be overwhelmed by and caught up in and transformed by. So I pray that we don't leave here with uh, a measure of guilt. Uh, I pray that we don't leave here with a heavy burden um, uh, other than a burden of compassion, that we have been loved so well, that we are never alone, that we are not left to ourselves, that we don't have to prove ourselves to you, and let that free us from the things that we look to compensate. May we love generously. May we love joyfully. May we bear witness to a good and loving and generous God who entered time and space, didn't leave it to us to find him, but came and found us. May we sing of your good love for us instead of boast of our love for you. And may we demonstrate that joyfully and generously to the world around us for your glory. And may we do that with joy and rejoicing. Thank you for entering our world. It's mind-boggling. I pray that that would mess with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.
building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.